Well, good evening and welcome to uh, this LSE Ideas public lecture on the future of EU enlargement. Uh, can I first start off by making clear that uh, we've had a slight change in programme, as most of you will probably have by now have realised, namely that the speaker who was originally advertised, namely the former Bulgarian Prime Minister, uh, Dr. Stanishev, has not been able to make it. Uh, he may well still come and speak at Ideas, possibly next term, but uh, he's not speaking tonight. But we were enormously lucky to be able to uh, rapidly, and I greatly thank uh, Luc Brunet for this because it was primarily his work, put together, I hope, a very stimulating alternative uh, event. Um, we had a workshop this, this afternoon uh, looking at the future of enlargement, but partly in the light of its past, and a number of tonight's speakers were participating in that event, and they very kindly agreed uh, to come back uh, to talk to us this evening, also in a rather larger format. So I will introduce them in a second. Can I first, though, stress two things? First of all, that this is um, uh, an event jointly organised by two of the IDEAS programmes, uh, the Cold War Studies programme, uh, which uh, I am the head of, uh, but also the Southern European programme. And so we're sort of collaborating together to put together this programme. And the second thing to stress is that this is the launch event of an LSE uh, Ideas special report, uh, which I believe most of the people coming in have been handed a copy of, looking at the future of enlargement. So uh, do take uh, time to look through that. I think there's some uh, stimulating and interesting essays and thoughts uh, from a variety of uh, uh, contributors in that special report. So uh, do, I do very much urge you to read that. But tonight's programme uh, is going to be a series of uh, thoughts and interventions by four extremely uh, distinguished uh, c contributors. We're going to start off uh, hearing from uh, Dimitar Bechov, who is a senior policy fellow and head of the SOFIA office of the European Council of Foreign Relations. So he's kindly agreed to go first, which is always the most difficult position. So thank you, Dimitar, for agreeing nobly to step into the, uh, into the first slot. He will then be followed by uh, Lawrence Meredith, who is head of strategy and policy in the Directorate General for Enlargement of the European Commission. Uh, then we turn to uh, John Peat, who is the Europe editor of The Economist. And then finally, a sort of commentator, but in effect, sort of fourth speaker tonight, uh, <laughs> Professor Robert Cooper, currently visiting professor at LSE Ideas, but formerly somebody deeply involved with the uh, Council of Ministers in, in, in Brussels and many other things in a long and distinguished career. So they will be the four speakers. The idea is all of them will intervene relatively briefly so we can segue fairly quickly into a uh, general discussions in which hopefully as many any of you as possible will be able to ask questions and make comments. Okay, that's enough from me, so I will, hand, uh, I will shut up quickly and hand straight over to Dimitar Petrov. Thank you. Let me use this one. Well, thanks a lot for having me, and thanks, Piers. Um, I was summoned to probably cover for another Bulgarian, um, Mr. Stanishev. And it, it's an odd position, let me tell you, because I spent the last half year rallying on the streets of Sofia telling uh, the likes of Stanishev that they have to go and, 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 and resign. But he, and the, the Prime Minister, he, he supports. 
And I guess there will be others in the audience who share this, this view. But here am I uh, talking about enlargement. Um, I mean, let me start by saying that enlargement is bound to continue. Of course, we see all the problems. Um, EU is beset by internal crisis. But simply, can you identify another policy of, of outreach that EU can pursue vis-a-vis -vis its neighbours? Uh, all the other alternatives have been tried, and let me tell you, enlargement is not an efficient policy. It's uh, poisoned by all kinds of contradictions. It's dysfunctional. But simply, it's very difficult to point an, uh, at an alternative. The European neighborhood policy was tried, but many countries see it as just a stepping stone to becoming a candidate country and, and engaging in an enlargement exercise. The European economic area um, is also not a very appealing alternative. Um, and the EU has a lot of inertia inbuilt. Uh, just look at the past three years. Uh, Croatia joined uh, this year. Montenegro started negotiations. Serbia is on the verge of starting negotiations in January, uh, let's hope. Um, even Turkey, which had its enlargement negotiations nearly blocked, has opened a new chapter. Of course, it's, it's a modest improvement, but something to take note. Um, but I think this is where good news stops, and maybe it's, it's worth picking on, on the problems, and I guess my fellow panelists will expand. And since we are at the London School of Economics, what better thing to do than look at um, some familiar notions of supply and demand? Uh, let me now first look at the supply side of enlargement. Clearly, we have a huge problem there, uh, because public opinion in uh, key member states is not favorably disposed to enlargement. Um, let's start again from this country here. Uh, if you open any newspaper, you, you see uh, the backlash against enlargement, with Bulgarians and Romanians um, knocking on the door, and all those uh, foreigners are about to storm in. And this is the debate elsewhere as well. Uh, we just saw that Marine Le Pen and uh, Gerd Wilders have a new party now, uh, together with Austrians, and anti-immigration. Not just extra EU immigration, but also immigration from the new member states is uh, the, very much the battle cry. Also, another more fundamental challenge is um, the agenda of the EU. It's so much... Uh, dominated by solving the euro crisis. Of course, we are not in the most acute phase right now. Um, the euro is not about to, to collapse. But nonetheless, we have the recession and also um, all the schemes of the future architecture of the EU are very much at the center of, of, of political discussion. As long as this is not solved and the future shape of the EU is not clear, um, we cannot say that enlargement will come as a top item. And by the way, the shape of the future EU um, would be a much more neatly organized entity or a multi-tier system will have important implications on the dynamics of enlargement. But it's safe to say that the EU is busy with itself these days, not with uh, welcoming new neighbors, new members. Um, and thirdly, sometimes when you pursue a foreign policy um, as ambitious as enlargement is, you have to be able to look at precedents and identify success cases. That was long time the story with the Central Eastern Europeans. But even those success cases uh, don't look as promising anymore. Think about what happened in the Czech Republic, where 
you have a populist party coming second, uh, which again uh, puts forward the issue of corruption, um, dysfunctional institutions, elites, um, elites not being accountable. Uh, Poland doesn't look very good. Um, which was the poster child of, of enlargement. Um, for the last celebration of uh, Polish independence and National Day was marred by um, tensions and violence. Hungary, and not to go further south to Romania and Bulgaria, um, you, you, know, you know the story. Even Slovenia, which was uh, a success story, doesn't look very good after the Euro crisis. So uh, precious little positive stories you can... Uh, point at and say, look, it does work. It does deliver the goods. Uh, that's why we have to enlarge to the likes of the Western Balkans, Ukraine, uh, how I mentioned Turkey. Now, but I, what I think it's interesting as well, and often it's missed uh, in the stories, the demand side. Why people want to join the European Union? Well, of course, it gives you access to resources, makes you richer, uh, gives you some stability. Um, but one element that is often overlooked is that um, EU uh, has been popular as a substitute for the domestic political deficits in many of those countries. Um, The fact that democracy exists as as a procedure, but is an unconsolidated democracy where there's very little trust in the system. In other words, you want the EU to be part of to interfere because you dislike your national elites. You don't trust them. You want somebody to punish them and to discipline them and, of course, give you some money um, along the way. Um, Also, in divided societies, the EU is there to maintain unity, uh, to to maintain the sense of statehood and, and political community. Now, I think we are moving to um, the limits with the crisis of this model, at least in many of those countries uh, where actually the crisis has undermined the legitimacy of the EU or or starting to undermine the legitimacy of the EU. Um, And the political demand for the services of the EU as a corrective in in national politics is, is, is reaching its limit. Uh, But more fundamentally, uh, you uh, want the EU because there's this narrative of convergence. Um, Member states, or becoming member state, is linked not only to improving governance and democratic standards, but increasing prosperity. I'm not very sure it works anymore. This narrative is challenged by the crisis. Um, all those countries that were dependent on trade, investment, remittances linked to the Eurozone suffered a blow by integration. So integration became a liability. And also the ex- experience of Southern Europe is very instructive. If you look at the latest uh, report by the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, there is the overarching question, are the new member states uh, and the Western Balkans and the former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe likely to, to catch up. And there is a big if whether we are on the trajectory of convergence. Uh, and this is the biggest challenge, to my mind, to, to enlargement. Uh, if not the loss of the uh, convergence narrative, the hollowing out um, that Europe actually is a motto of convergence, a, a, a convergence agent. But uh, let me end on a positive note um, that maybe there is something to be rescued. Um, If you look at Ukraine, it seems that people, at least a segment of the population which is not 
insignificant beliefs in the story. Once the Judaism demand, if you look to Bulgaria, where people have been rallying again for 160 days, there is the demand to bring in Europe, um, and there is some residue a belief in enlargement as a transformative force. And finally, what is there is an alternative narrative. Um, possibly you can look at uh, Russia and the Putin uh, authoritarian leader um, carrying out uh, modernization projects, but um, I'm not very sure that uh, the appeal works on um, many societies beyond the Soviet Union. It doesn't work in the Western Balkans, despite what the newspapers in Serbia have to say. I'm not sure it works in Ukraine uh, either. The other story, potentially, is the story told by Erdogan. Again, um, Turkey has an authoritarian leadership, which is democratically legitimate because nobody rigs elections in Turkey. It delivers um, the goods uh, in terms of um, modernization. But again, um, I'm not sure that there is this universalistic appeal, that there is soft power, uh, that tomorrow people in Bosnia, in Albania or elsewhere will say, look, we don't need the European Union because Turkey uh, promises um, a more appealing package to us. Um, and I think enlargement is bound to continue partly because there is no uh, alternative story to be told and, and, and there is no, nothing to fill in the gap. But let me stop here. And thank you for your attention. Okay, thank you very much. Lots, uh, lots of ideas there to pick up on in discussion, but uh, let's move straight on to the second speaker. So, Lawrence, over to you. Thanks uh, very much, uh, Piers. So, the question before us is, uh, is it enlargement in crisis? Well, first, let me start by saying, uh, is there a crisis? And certainly... Um, over the past five years, we have to say, yes, of course, there has been a crisis. Is that crisis first and foremost about enlargement? Absolutely not. Uh, the crisis is first and foremost um, the major economic uh, recession that has hit uh, not just uh, the EU, not just Europe, but of course uh, the world. Um, so if it's not only about enlargement, then what I want to do is put the enlargement policy back in this context. Um, and I think there are two concepts that we hear a lot in this debate. Uh, one is enlargement fatigue, and the other one is reform fatigue. But let me start first by saying, why is enlargement in the interest of the European Union? The first reason is about peace and stability. Twenty years on from the conflict... That's unfortunately been too often forgotten. But if you say to uh, any member of the public, Bosnia or Kosovo, um, unfortunately the image that still flashes in front of them is conflict. And there's no question uh, in people's minds that they want the stability that has fortunately existed now for over uh, 10 years in the region. Uh, secondly, why enlargement is about a process of promoting democratic reform. And that we have seen uh, consistently uh, throughout the enlargement process, uh, starting with the case of Greece and carrying through uh, to the most recent case uh, of Croatia. And thirdly, it's about uh, enhanced prosperity. Uh, in the first instance, for those countries that have applied to join the European Union, which is also linked back into the security argument, because 
if these countries that are applying through a reform process achieve increased prosperity, there is less likely uh, to be a risk of security to the existing European Union uh, from issues uh, such as crime and migration. Um, furthermore, an additional benefit is that through enlargement for the existing EU members is the uh, perspective of an enlarged market. In terms of reform fatigue, does that mean enlargement stopped? Is there a better alternative that we see to enlargement? The answer to both of those questions is an emphatic no. Um, however, uh, does that mean uh, that uh, the enlargement process shouldn't change? Of course it should change. It's a process that has evolved ever since uh, the beginning, uh, which was, of course, about the United Kingdom itself. Um, so we've seen an awful lot of change in the enlargement process. Uh, and one of the panels of this afternoon was precisely reviewing the history of that process. Um, to sketch that very rapidly, uh, you see the democracy becoming a key, con a key issue and a key motivator in the, uh, in the accession of Greece, Spain and Portugal. You see this being enshrined in what is now called the Copenhagen Criteria when it came to the enlargement to the EU 10 of 2004. And you see further additions to that process through an increased focus in the accession of Bulgaria and Romania on justice and home affairs and in Croatia on judiciary and fundamental rights. And what is the enlargement agenda now? We see uh, very much that the emphasis now is quality, not speed. Um, it's important what quality of reforms we see in these countries, um, be it in terms of rule of law, be it in terms of uh, reform of public uh, administration, uh, be it in terms of economic uh, governance reforms. And what is absolutely clear is that there is a consensus of all the existing 28 European Union member states that what we need uh, is the applicant countries to tackle these big issues, rule of law, public administration reform, economic governance, much earlier in the process. Uh, and that is clearly an evolution that is set to continue. Um, so going back to this question uh, of a crisis, the other aspect uh, is the uh, enlargement fatigue. And the arguments in favour would say, well, um, if you ask people, do you want more uh, member states, the European Union, public opinion, the clear answer uh, on the whole is likely to be no. On the other hand, what is the underlying reasons for those concerns? Um, is won't it break the existing functioning of the European Union? And I think we've seen since the enlargement uh, to 10 countries in 2004, almost a decade ago, that it has not broken the functioning of the European Union. Uh, and the other argument uh, is economics. Won't that mean um, uh, a risk of jobs, problems of immigration? Uh, and certainly there are concerns and legitimate concerns in that area, uh, but this has not been... Uh, uh, the overwhelming uh, factors that people worried about in advance of the 2004 uh, enlargement, although there are definitely issues there that we need to address as we go forward uh, in, the enlargement, uh, in the enlargement process. So um, I think the, when you look 
Uh, the, renew, the current agenda of enlargement is what we call the renewed consensus, uh, the three C's, uh, that if the applicant countries meet the conditions, the existing EU member states uh, will meet their commitments, uh, and the important element is communication. I would say that in terms of meeting the conditions, major efforts are being made by the current enlargement countries. And the other very important factor is that enlargement is an intergovernmental process. It's taken, decisions are taken by all uh, member states, all 28, unanimously. Uh, so every step of the way has been agreed uh, by all the governments, and that's a fact that's often overlooked. Perhaps where there is an area that, where we need most improvement is in communication, where there is a disconnect between the decisions taken by the elites uh, and the fact that they're not standing uh, on a soapbox saying, we've taken this decision in favour of enlargement because. Uh, and that, I think, feeds back into the issue of, um, of public opinion concerns. So I think, looking ahead, and I'll conclude on these, this point, I think that um, where we do need to see adaptation is, one, with regard to the enlargement countries, um, and this is the process that the, the Commission uh, drives, we need to have an ever more robust <coughs> reform. The emphasis very much needs to be on quality, not speed. Countries uh, uh, will join if they meet the conditions, but they do need to meet those conditions. And yes, the process will continue to get harder, and it will be about rule of law as a make-or-break issue. It will be about public administration reform, and it will be about uh, improved economic governance. Uh, but equally, uh, and this is the enlargement strategy uh, published this year, is designed to do exactly that. Fundamentals first, back to basics. This is what they need to tackle. Um, and it confirms that the Copenhagen criteria, rule of law, functioning institutions, functioning democracy, um, fundamental values and fundamental rights uh, are exactly the agenda that uh, we need to be addressing. But equally, I think the other thing that needs to change is the communication. Um, if 28 member states and their governments are taking these decisions by unanimity, they need to have the courage to go out and defend those decisions and explain the reasons that they have taken those decisions. Thank you. Thank you. John, over to, over to you. Uh, thank you very much. Well, it's, um, it's nice in a European Union context to be discussing enlargement rather than the euro crisis. Um, so I think the publication of this report is very much welcome because one of the problems of the European Union, which I will touch on in a moment, is that the euro crisis has come to consume almost everything else, including enlargement. Um, I do think European Union enlargement has been um, a great success. I think somewhere in this report somebody says it ha has been, as is often said, the biggest foreign policy success of the European Union. Um, I always contrast the experience of the United States with the countries to its south to the experience of the European Union with the countries to its east. And I think that um, post-Cold War, um, Europe got things right in, in, in a very important way. And without the tool of enlargement, um, it, things could have gone very badly wrong. Uh, and I do think, um, to pick up a point that Lawrence was making, that um, the only reason the Western Balkans have in fact been peaceful for the past 10 years is because the countries of the Western Balkans 
believe they will one day be allowed to join the European Union. Without that tool, I think that um, things could have been much worse. So I'm very pro-enlargement. Uh, and I do take Lawrence's point. It is continuing. Croatia's just joined. Um, tur- talks continue with Turkey and Montenegro, uh, and we've discussed the possibility that several Western Balkan countries will eventually follow. Um, the talks with Iceland, I think, seem to have been frozen, but um, Iceland could join if it wanted to, so indeed could, could Norway and, and Switzerland. And if you put together all of those countries, you could imagine in an optimistic scenario moving from a U- European Union of 28 to as much as 44. Um, and I think that uh, so it would be a mistake for people to say that enlargement is dead. It might end up being 43 if the United Kingdom chose to leave. Um, but uh, we're discussing enlargement at the moment, not contraction. But despite those comments, I do think that the European Union enlargement process is in crisis. Um, I take Lawrence's point that the crisis really is a, a broader one about the European Union as a whole, but it's clearly spilling very heavily into enlargement, and it has some specific features that um, are associated particularly with enlargement. Um, I use the word disillusion rather than fatigue. I think there is enlargement fatigue, but uh, uh, my, my point on disillusion is that I think there is even among those who are pro-European, some disillusion with some past enlargements, um, not perhaps going back as far as the UK, although there are still some people who think that the UK should have been kept out of this club. But certainly there are people who think Greece was admitted too early to the European Union, and Greece should not have been admitted to the Euro, and I think that's clouded enlargement. Um, some people also think that um, the, uh, the expansion to um, include the former GDP which was inevitable in 1990, but it imported some problems into the management of the European economy. But the real point about disillusion, I think, concerns the enlargements of 2004 and then 2007. Um, I happen to be very strongly in favour of them, and I think they've been positive and beneficial for the countries concerned and for the European Union. But I think it is fair to say that many people think that there were mistakes made. Cyprus was clearly a mistake. Um, It should not have been admitted until the Cyprus problem had been solved, and it's been a difficulty for the European Union ever since it came in. Um, Dimitri mentioned um, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and even Poland, although I'm actually very pro-Poland. I think Poland is just going through a temporary difficulty. But there are some, there, are, there is enough evidence there to suggest that although it's been good for those countries, and I would also argue for the European Union, there have been cases where the process has gone a little bit backwards. And one of the discoveries that we have made since 2004 uh, and 07 is that once a country is in the European Union, it is considerably harder to influence its policy direction and to keep it on the path of democracy and liberalism than before it joins. Um, the European Union has far stronger levers over a country before a country joins than it does afterwards, and that's something that I think perhaps we need to look at again. Um, and I think there is a quite common consensus that Bulgaria and Romania came in too soon. Um, they hadn't they, they, their systems of governance, judicial quality, uh, and and so on were not ready for the European Union. And the experience of having them in hasn't been a totally happy one for anybody. So I think there is that's a, a sort of general reason why enlargement is in crisis is some disillusion with the past. Second reason, of course, is that the European Union itself is in an economic and economic crisis, and, and to some extent, an identity crisis as a result of the euro. And that's clearly made further expansion of the club much more problematic. Um, 
But the third reason, more specifically, I've got five reasons, that's why I'm numbering them, more specifically and linked to enlargement, is that the current negotiations, in some respects, are going very much more slowly than people had hoped. And that is particularly true of Turkey. Turkey is a huge problem for the European Union. We began negotiating with Turkey in 2005, that's eight years ago. We've closed one chapter out of 32. We've just, is it 32 or 33? I can't remember. We've just opened one more, but 16 chapters are now blocked. Um, This has been an extremely painful process, and the view of many people in Turkey now is that the European Union has effectively said, no, we're we're only really pretending to talk to you. We don't really intend ever to admit Turkey. Um, And I think that that soured the relationship with Turkey and made made, uh, and discredited to some extent enlargement. Of course, there are very strong reasons for doubt about whether Turkey would be a good member of the European Union, and and the events of the past few years have, I think, reinforced those doubts because, to some extent, Turkey has gone backwards in terms of democracy and the rule of law and liberalism. Although it is clearly, as um, Demirtas said, it's, it is clearly a, a very strong democracy. Um, but I think one of the reasons why Erdogan has moved in what I would see as an uh, unhelpfully autocratic direction both at home and indeed in his foreign policy, where he's diverged a lot from Europe, is a feeling that the Europeans have turned their back on Turkey. And I think Turkey feels that, and as a result has behaved worse than it might have done otherwise. So I think Turkey is a huge, huge problem for enlargement that we need to um, uh, try and put right. Fourth reason is the other countries to the east of the European Union, and I'm excluding Russia in this, which is a problem in its own right that would justify a huge debate on on its own. But the countries that are in the Eastern Partnership, the most prominent of which, of course, is Ukraine, we're going through a very painful process with Ukraine, whether Ukraine really wants to lean west or east. I happen to believe that the Ukrainian people are absolutely clear that their future lies in Europe, and it does not lie in some cooked-up club run by Vladimir Putin. But I think the European Union hasn't always got it right in regards to Ukraine. And one of the mistakes I think they made post-2004 was they were never quite bold enough to offer Ukraine a clear perspective of membership of the club. Of course, we know that it would, it would take many, many years before there would be any question of Ukraine joining the European Union, um, because it has to go through all the Copenhagen criteria and so on that, that Lawrence was mentioning. But I think there is a feeling in some parts of, of the Eastern Partnership countries that they're not really wanted by the European Union as potential members, and that has contributed in certain cases towards the feeling that maybe they have to go back towards Russia, and I think that that is um, uh, unhelpful for them and unhelpful potentially for the European Union. And then the last big problem, which has also been touched on by um, both our previous speakers, is of course public opinion inside the European Union itself, which I think has become much more hostile to enlargement. I think it's done it on a largely ill-informed basis. Uh, One reason for that is that in many countries, including I'm afraid to say this country, enlargement and indeed the European Union itself have become very strongly associated in people's minds with immigration. Um, Of course there is free movement of people implicit in the European treaties, and if a country joins the European Union, it normally does get free movement to people after a long period. And we know that from the 1st of January, Romania and Bulgaria will enjoy full free movement of of labour inside the club. 
I happen to think that that is much less damaging to the countries of the European Union than public opinion believes. But I'm sorry to say that the political leaders in this country above all, but also in some other parts of the European Union, have tended to pander to anti-immigrant feeling by implying that somehow or other it's all the fault of the European Union and it is linked to enlargement. And that's contributed to a hostility to enlargement that is, has become very widespread. Um, where do we go from here? I would just hope that when we have another commission and another European Parliament, which may have quite a fair number of loonies in it, um, but despite that, I would hope that for the next um, five years or so, at some point we try and revitalise the enlargement process, particularly for the countries of the Eastern Partnership, but also for Turkey. Mr Erdogan will not be Prime Minister forever, I'm very glad to say. Indeed, I hope he's going to go next year. And I think that Turkey does have a place in Europe, uh, and I would like it to be revived. And I think it is possible that as an outcome of the euro crisis, if we see a more fluid European Union with some countries in bits of the club and some countries not, um, what you might call concentric circles, that that could itself evolve in, in some way that actually helps to, to um, revitalise enlargement. Thank you. Okay, Robert. I'm wondering if it will work if I stand up. Do we know how to make that, that might work? Right? Right. It actually works if, if not, yeah. because it's, it's easier to uh, to tell us we're wrong. Easier to speak. <laughs> you can tell me if it. Yeah, this seems good. No, stereo. It's easier to speak standing up, and it's easier to see the audience because there's a big bit of you that's hidden, that's sitting down. Um, well. Uh, this week, there have been people on the streets of Ukraine waving European flags, yes. about 100,000 of them, as far as, as far as you can tell. It's a really big demonstration, and it's cold in Ukraine these days. That seems remarkable. Um, and um, uh, uh, it's, it's unusual to see people waving flags from other, from other places. It's remarkable that people want to join an institution as boring and pedantic as the European Union. If only they knew what the Commission would do to them if this, <laughs> if this, was, to, if this was to happen. But still, it's remarkable. And I, as a, as a member of the European Union, I feel a bit proud, actually, that the demonstration, that there are demonstrators on the Ukraine who see that as being their future and a more attractive future than the one that Mr. Putin is uh, offering to them with so many different kinds of threats. Um, if you ask what's happened in, in a global way, if you ask what happened in the last 20 years, um, going back to the early 1990s, uh, then there are really two things that have happened that are lasting. Uh, one is the rise of China, uh, which has brought all kinds of other things in its, in its way, including some, some risks and dangers. And the other, I believe at any rate, is what's happened in Europe uh, has been the shifting of the boundaries of... Well, it's not perfect, so I don't know quite what I'll say of, I was going to say, civilized, the civilized world. Uh, but why not? The shifting of the boundaries of the civilized world a little bit to the east. Um, not complete yet, um, uh, but that looks like, to me, uh, a permanent change. Um, uh, and successes in big changes like that in foreign policy uh, take a long time. 
Um, uh, they're never perfect to begin with, but this looks to me like uh, a real permanent change. Um, and like the demonstrators in Ukraine, who I would like one day to be part of the European Union, I think that's also something to be, uh, to be proud of. If you go back 10 years ago, you find that um, uh, the Americans, when you met them, were all talking about regime change. Well, that has been what the European Union has attempted to do. It's not succeeded uh, completely in every case, but it has brought, as Lawrence said, uh, peace and stability. Um, and stability is not to be underrated. The stability that's been brought is in some ways often um, an administrative stability rather than a democratic stability. Uh, because in the end, when the local government doesn't do the job, it's done by, it's done by Brussels. Uh, that's not a perfect solution, but it's not a bad interim solution. Because what do you get without stability um, uh, after you've had a dramatic uh, uh, change of regime, you get a vacuum of power, uh, you get, um, normally you get Robespierre and Napoleon. Napoleon to deal with the external problems and Robespierre to deal with the internal problems. Um, instead of that, uh, we've had uh, the... Um, I get it the other way around. We have NATO and the European Union. NATO to deal with the external threats, European Union to provide some kind of internal order. Now, that's not absolutely... The internal order is not perfect. Indeed, I, was it, it was Dimitar who was saying running through the list of, uh, uh, of troubled countries in Eastern Europe, and there are lots of them, though I agree with John about Poland. Poland's doing okay, actually. Mm. Um, uh, and so, so are a couple of the Baltic states doing okay. The rest, and Slovakia, too, strangely, not so bad. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and the others all have problems, but they have a... a um, there is at least... Um, not the kind of instability that normally follows revolutions which is fatal to the solution of those problems. The European Union at least offers a time in which people can work out the democratic transition, which hasn't fully happened. They have elections, but the, uh, there isn't a real democratic culture yet in many of the countries. Um, uh, but I think there's now every chance that that will, uh, that that will work itself out. Um, at least uh, the one thing that you can be 100% certain of is that it's better than the alternative. The alternative, if you want to see what that looks like, looks unfortunately a bit more like Ukraine, uh, which has had a very rocky uh, 20 years, and I don't see the end of that. Personally, I agree with John as well there. I think we should have made clear to the Ukrainians, in fact, personally, I did make clear to the Ukrainians, <laughs> that in the end... Uh, they would be irresistible as members of the European Union if they, did, uh, if they did all of the things that were needed. Very big ask, but not impossible. It can be done. Um, and that, by the way, if you ask why do I want that, well, partly because actually Ukraine is a very uh, attractive country in many ways, and people have a long, parts of them at any rate, have got a very long European history. Um, also because that seems to me to be the best way that we could have an influence on Russia, which badly needs a positive influence on it. Mm -hmm. The sight of Ukraine functioning well would really change things in Moscow in a way that nothing else we can think of does. As for peace, um, 
going back 20 years, um, uh, the wars in the Balkans were just beginning. Um, and uh, the answer to those Balkan wars came gradually during the 90s that we recognized that actually this was a part of Europe and we needed to take responsibility for it. That was confirmed in the Helsinki, in the Thessaloniki summit um, uh, 10 years back. Uh, and since then, we've been implementing it bit by bit, a very slow process. The latest installment of that process came earlier this year with the agreement that Cathy uh, Ashton negotiated between Belgrade and Pristina, um, which I think is a genuine contribution to peace. Um, if you wanted to know where was the largest possibility of violence in Europe, the answer was in northern Kosovo. Now, it's not completely over. These things take time before you can be sure that they've worked, but now there is at least a decent chance uh, that that won't happen. Um, uh, why has that happened? Why have um, this, um, this government bringing together um, uh, the two, um, the extreme right and the extreme left of Serbian politics, as they used to be, Mr. Milosevic's spokesman on the one hand, and on the other hand, the son of the radical party, the extreme right in Serbia. Why has this government uh, made <clears throat> what two or three years ago seemed like extraordinary concessions? Um, uh, the answer is essentially for the same reason that people are on the streets of Ukraine, because in spite of all its failings, the European Union is not such a bad model. Um, and uh, why is it, what is it about enlargement uh, that has made it work more effectively than anything else anyone has thought of? The answer is, I think, it comes from the slogan they used to use with computers, garbage in, garbage out. If you want to get big results in foreign policy, then you have to offer something big. Uh, membership of the European Union is something big. Uh, it offers you not just, it's not about money. Um, it's about uh, a European identity, uh, which is very valuable at every level in, in societies across Europe. Uh, uh, and it's about a voice at the table. What everybody really wants is they want some kind of autonomy. Uh, in a world of multiple states, you can't do whatever you want, but having a voice where the decisions are made, and for many people that's in Brussels, is something that matters enormously and is worth paying a big price for. So uh, that's why I agree with those who said, actually, what's the alternative? Well, that's what the audience can tell us. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we've had four fascinating and very interesting and, I think, provocative uh, sets of comments. Uh, so uh, let me straight away open uh, up the floor uh, to questions, or if people are taking a bit of time, I'll have to think of one myself, which, as I've done a certain amount of work on enlargement, shouldn't be too difficult. Okay, well, let, let me, as, as people are collecting their thoughts and trying to think of questions, uh, let, me, let me, in a sense, ask, um, ask whether you would agree with the following comment, namely that one of the, uh, and in a sense several of you have already touched upon this theme, but it strikes me that one of the problems about enlargement is that 
It has become a process which has a relatively clearly mapped out sort of bureaucratic path, which can take a lot of time, but nevertheless the the principal stages of which are relatively well known in advance. Um, It has that sort of in a sense humdrum side to it and then it has the in a sense idealistic side that several of you touched upon that this is actually a a real life changing country changing geopolitical changing um, process and one of the problems with the one of the problems in communicating the enlargement story if you want to both the EU's public and to public opinion in countries that are uh, in a sense, made to wait in the EU's antechamber is precisely the disconnect between these two stories. That you've got, you've got, you've got a sort of what can sound a little bit like a fairy tale, a big good news story, and then you've got this rather hard, time-consuming bureaucratic grind on the other. And the, the communication challenge that Lawrence was pointing to is, in a sense, how to bridge that particular divide. Uh, so, I don't know, Lawrence is nodding, so perhaps I, I want him to respond. <laughs> uh, you want me to respond. Um, no, I think, I, think that's, uh, I think that's absolutely absolutely right. I think that um, the first answer I gave to why enlargement and that Robert picked up on, um, peace and stability... Um, I've, I've heard increasingly uh, over the eight years I've been involved uh, in the enlargement process say it's very old-fashioned. Um, but I, for one, don't think there's anything wrong uh, with that. If that's to be considered an old-fashioned argument, uh, I, I find that a rather sad reflection of where we've got to in terms of the values that we, we hold uh, in this society, quite frankly. I think that next year marks 100 years on from Sarajevo, um, it's only 20 years on from the wars uh, uh, in the Balkans, and I think um, that there's nothing worse than war. Uh, so for me, the starting point is very simply peace and stability, and I, I, really, I really hope, I'm very happy for my part of the bargain to continue being the bureaucrat, doing the bureaucratic grind, um, but I would hope that those who are in a position of political leadership um, would show a bit more political leadership uh, and in particular be prepared to speak up for the old-fashioned values of peace and stability, um, which seem to me still important. Yes? I mean, I, I propose a third strand of, of thinking. Of course, there's the bureaucratic strand, there's the idealistic one, but there's a political one as well, politics as usual. Essentially, you, you can think of elites at the national level who learn to play the game, talk the talk, but not really walk the walk. And they use the EU as a way to channel resources and build up their clientele, adapt to the EU. We've seen that time and again. Now, the real challenge is if this, the, bureaucrat, the bureaucratic part, mm-hmm. over time, not tomorrow, not the day after, but over a longer period of time, undoes or transforms national politics to deliver the idealistic one. Yeah. And this is a big question. We're yet to, to see some positive examples because we've seen a lot of examples of adaptation and of um, what uh, Prince de Lampedusa said, everything has to change in order to stay the same. Um, don't underestimate the potential of peripheries to adapt and to, to cheat imperial pressure from the centre. 
<laughs> okay. Um, Maybe I can just say one thing okay, sure. more there. I, I also, also worry a bit, and I think that Demita used the right word, I worry a bit about the difference between the rather kind of visionary, idealistic view which I took and than what Lawrence does on a day-to-day basis. The bit in between that, the bit that's supposed to bring those two things together, is politics. And that's actually where most of the failings have been, because that's something which it's very difficult to impose from the outside. Um, I was... uh, I was... One of the things that struck me about the the Serbia-Kosovo negotiations was that... um, we had drawn up, uh, actually even before I left the European Union, we'd drawn up our idea of what the settlement looked like. Um, and it proved to be more or less accurate um, uh, with the one thing that we missed, and that was that both um, uh, Belgrade and Pristina insisted that the right way to start this uh, was by having elections in the north. Um, and in a way, I felt encouraged by that, because actually, if you want political change, then you've got to, you've got to, uh, that's the way in which you do it. Uh, you've got to start making the democratic institutions work better. And I'm not sure how we can incorporate that thought, that in between the bureaucratic and the kind of visionary thing, there's a political level that needs to be thought about as well, and which actually has been in some ways missing here and there in Romania, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, and so on. Not just law, but politics. John, do you want to... No, just very... Just, I mean, I strongly agree with that, and I can't think of the last time I heard a political leader from the old Europe, um, European Union, including this country, um, make any speech at all in favour of enlargement or praising enlargement. Um, and I think that's a, great, that's a great shame. And I think the problem of Turkey, which I touched on several times in my opening remarks does need a political input as well as just a bureaucratic or an idealistic one. I think the bureaucratic procedure of 33 chapters, let's work through them, doesn't work with Turkey, clearly. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is with Turkey, but it's something that politicians need to grapple with. Okay, thank you. Uh, There's several hands beginning to appear. There's a lady about midway back there. Oh, there were two of them, but um, one with the blue jumper first. Um, Thank you very much. Um, I was wondering, um, maybe it's a slightly different issue and maybe a different focus, but um, I had to think in terms of enlargement also of the question of like what types of movement are we, uh, movements are we um, thinking of when we speak of Europe um, as like um, notion or as a continent which is somehow striving to expand, and how is um, it seems that it's about a movement which is going inwards, about like sharing values, sharing democratic ideas, and so on. But how is this connected to other movements or to other movements which might come from outside, like for other continents? And how is this, for example, the wall which is being built on the border between Turkey and Bulgaria in this present moment, which is actually... Uh, supposed to prevent Syrian refugees mainly from like other continents to enter Europe. How is this a European question and how is this um, connected to notions of movements which are acceptable or not acceptable in um, terms of migration and so on? 
And is this an issue at all for uh, thinking when we think about Europe and when we think about what it means to be European or democratic? Okay, thank you. I think I'll collect two or three questions before putting them back to the panel. Uh, so there's a gentleman in the middle there with the blue. Again, I seem to be discriminating in favour of blue. Uh, I promise to change colour. Thank you very much. Um, I want to not look. I want to before looking forward to the next enlargements or within probably next ten years. But I want to look back at the Croatian one. Um, what we have seen is that. EU has learned in its, in its approach towards enlargement that it needs to go back to the fundamentals, it needs to go back to the values and, and democracy promotion. Um, and my question is, in Croatia we've seen that um, they just exceeded this July and not even four months after exceeding to the EU, we've seen a lot of illiberal processes going on. We've got the marriage referendum which will happen this um, Sunday about defining marriage between a man and a woman. Um, then we also got uh, fascist songs being sang at uh, football matches. Um, we've got um, an initiative to ban Cyrillic uh, to make it for the Serbian minorities harder to function in their municipalities. Um, and what I think I want to ask is how do you see why the EU might have failed in, in convincing maybe the population this time because the politicians seems to be going with the idea of the fundamental values and democracy but the population, because all of these events are civilian driven uh, events and I'm wondering what you the four of you or five of you think about where this is where the very went wrong and where we should think about for the next enlargements thank you Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll do one more question this round, but I've got more than enough for at least a round afterwards. Can the gentleman at the front here in the white sweater? Uh, thank you all for a very interesting discussion. Uh, my question is linked to Russia. Uh, over the past few months, we've seen Russia pressuring the countries who are participants in the upcoming uh, Eastern Partnership uh, Summit due to take place in Vilnius. Uh, so if you look at Moldova, especially Ukraine, uh, Armenia, Georgia. What is your assessment of the Russian threat to EU enlargement in the East in the next uh, decade, to say? Because uh, I think Russia is seeing the world still in the zero-sum terms, and I think the EU should be more worried about Russia uh, in the East and should take some measures. So what do you think the EU response should be uh, to Russia? Okay, thank you. That's already enough to be, for our panelists to be getting on with. So who wants to start? Uh, well, let me say something about um, about about Russia and very briefly on Croatia. Um, uh, on on Croatia, I, I did touch on the issue of Hungary, and I think the point. I mean, it'd be interesting to know whether Lawrence has a view on this. At some point, I think the European Union needs to develop some better mechanisms for saying to countries what you are doing is not acceptable. Um, and as I said, you can say that to a country before they join because they still will do what you, what, what you want because they want to join. But as we have seen with, with Hungary, and we may now be seeing with Croatia, although I, I'm not sure it's quite as bad as, as, as was portrayed, um, is the feeling that once they're in, they can do what they like. Um, 
we do have the nuclear option of suspending um, membership, um, uh, but I think it's, it's not a satisfactory way of dealing with this, and I think the rest of Europe needs to find some other way of making it clear to countries that what they're doing is not is not um, consistent with their membership of the European Union. Um, uh, and I'm not sure what the answer is. I don't think, I don't think we're, we, we should amend the treaties for that, but somehow or other the leaders of Europe need to, need to find some new mechanism. Um, and on Russia, uh, yes, I, I do think that Russia has behaved very badly towards the in countries of the Eastern neighbourhood. There was a time when Russians would say, what we object to is NATO enlargement because NATO has you know, clearly some connotations in Russia. And in a way, you could understand why the Russians might have felt um, that Georgia or Ukraine joining NATO was somehow a potential threat to them. But at that time, they never said they objected to any countries joining the European Union. The European Union is a sort of economic block. It has some foreign policy um, connotations, but it's not a security or, or defense threat in any way to Russia. They now do seem to be saying... Once the Baltics have gone in, which we think was a mistake, you, should, you can't have any more of what was the former Soviet Union. Um, I do think that in terms of hearts and minds in these countries, the European Union has clearly won the argument. These countries don't want to go back to Russia. Um, the Russians do have some economic power. Um, they do have gas they do have money. Um, but I, I, I think in the end, they're not going to win this argument because uh, people, the people would much rather, as um, Robert was describing in the streets of, of Kiev, they would much rather go, to, go in the European direction. But we need to respond fairly firmly to Russia and say threats are not, are not the way of doing things. It's, yeah, that's, it's, it's amazing how... Um, Russia used to underrate the EU for a long time because it was not a military power and now it seems to be taking EU seriously because economic integration as, as an instrument and in, in a goal uh, obviously matters also in, in, the, in Putin's thinking. But let me go back to the first question about boundaries. I think the beauty of enlargement is that um, it's not a process where you bring in new member states and then you erect barriers. On the contrary, it, once you bring in uh, new countries. Um, this creates demand for outreach policies to the next level, to the neighbours of the neighbours and so forth. Um, but having said that, uh, and going back to the Syrian uh, refugee asylum seeker issue, uh, one thing which is worrying and, and will become a, a trend to my mind in, in the new member state is probably they'll go uh, down the routes that southern Europe has gone. In other words, from countries um, of out migration, they will become uh, recipients of, of migrants. And these are not societies, going back to the point about Croatian society, these are not societies which are used to diversity. Maybe they are to some extent because of local indigenous minorities and so forth. But encountering people from the Middle East, from South Asia and further afield will be a novel experience. And uh, many of the less savory um, um, phenomena that you see in Western Europe will be, in Southern Europe, will be reproduced. Um, there will be golden dawns elsewhere, unfortunately. Uh, you can call it Europeanization with a dark face, but th this is a fact of life. Well, I, I was going to say that um, I don't think this is, is a, what I'm going to say isn't, rea isn't realistic, but logically, we ought to understand that uh, Syrian refugees 
are not specifically trying to get to Bulgaria, they're trying to get to Europe, and we ought to regard it as a European problem. I say, unfortunately, that's not realistic because um, uh, the countries which are not threatened by migratory flows have a long history of deciding that it's not their problem, but actually it is their problem. And uh, um, uh, if they were real men, then they would regard it as such, but they're not. Or, or a woman. <laughs> okay, uh, another, another round of questions. Uh, oh, sorry, did you, Lawrence? Did you, uh, <coughs> well, perhaps just to um, at least contribute to that round, uh, I think the point I'd like to um, pick up on is this issue of um, the, the, the tensions described regarding uh, the Croatia situation right now and what conclusions um, we draw from it. Um, I wouldn't put it specifically in the context uh, uh, only of, of the Croatia story. I think um, that there are lessons being drawn for the uh, forward uh, uh, also starting from the Bulgaria-Romania process and the transition through to the Croatia enlargement. Um, and I think uh, one important decision was taken about Croatia um, following the Bulgaria-Romania experience, which was for Bulgaria and Romania, we put in place a cooperation and verification mechanism, and in the case of Croatia, the decision was taken not to do so. Um, I think there are two very important reasons uh, that are at the heart of today's debate. Um, and one is because... Um, I think the feeling is, first, you need to get the enlargement process right. So before um, countries graduate, to use that uh, um, term, uh, they need to have really gone a very long way on the reform process, and the main conclusion we've drawn from that is that we need to start an awful lot earlier. Um, so um, there was a recent World Bank study that said economic change takes 10 to 15 years uh, and values change, such as the rule of law, takes a double. Um, that rather implies that you need to get going early uh, uh, on the values and also on the economic, and it also implies it's going to take a long time. Um, so I think the one co first conclusion is you need to tackle it early. The second thing, and this is uh, Robert picked this uh, uh, up, uh, and John's also touched on it, is that very simply you need more tools once they have become members. Um, because it, what can't happen is, uh, you know, you go to school, you learn all your lessons, and then when you get to university, you forget it all. Um, that um, may be what happens in some cases, but it's not a very successful strategy for studying. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, uh, another round of questions. Yes, there's a uh, gentleman at the back, right behind, hidden by the pillar, but not so hidden, I didn't see him. There's somebody right at the back over there, too. Thanks. Um, thanks for an interesting discussion so far as well. I have a question about Bosnia and uh, what to do about Bosnia. The um, the process as it as it as it functions at the moment doesn't seem to be working in Bosnia. Um, does does the enlargement process need um, a new set of tools tailored for Bosnia? Um, do the current tools need to be cut, i.e. the IPA assistance, or should there be a return of old, old tools? I'm thinking bomb powers. Okay, thank you. Um, there was another... Sorry, lots of questions in this part of the room, right at the back there as well. So the lady with the headscarf. Oh, 
Hello, my name is Christina. I'm a student here at LSE. Uh, just when we discuss EU enlargement, I wanted to ask the panel whether there is a limit of the EU enlargement. And if there's a maximum size of the EU, what is it defined by? Is it defined by value and norms by the states, by the regimes in the states, or by geography? Thank you. Admirably concise as well. And perhaps take a second question from this thing, the man at the front, right at the front. Well, not quite right at the front. Second row. There we go. That's great. Thanks very much to the speakers. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask the panel about uh, institutional capacity considering uh, the future of enlargement, and so I mean to say sort of the third Copenhagen criteria that the EU has to be able to cope institutionally speaking. Um, just where do you see that progressing? As I would certainly agree that more members will certainly probably join the EU. I can't imagine 44 commissioners working particularly well. Um, so, and indeed the number of members of the European Parliament is capped. So just how do you see the institutional dynamic within the EU itself changing as more members join? Thanks. Okay, two, two nicely linked questions. Perhaps take one more, given the number of hands, perhaps in the middle here. Um. So adding to the question about Croatia, um, could you please tell us what do you think would be the impact of the Europe 2020 growth strategy for like, accession countries, for example? Is that could be like, a possible answer to the problem we, we have discussed Okay, another, another nice short question. Okay, um, over to the panellists for responses. So who wants to step into the breach? Well, actually, I wanted to say something about Croatia. Okay. First, but I'm going to say something about the rest, too. Um, uh, and what I wanted to say is I don't think that it's all just a question of beating people up in one way or another. I think that actually the process of belonging to a wider community has a meaning. And for me, if you want to see the country which has socially transformed, I don't know quite how long this took, but there are people in the audience who can tell us, I really think of Spain. If you look at Spain at the end of the Franco era, this was actually not exactly like Croatia, but it was a very dark, old-fashioned kind of Catholicism. Well, that's really gone completely. So I think these things will, will sort themselves out with a little bit of time, provided you don't hold referenda on things. Always a, bad, <laughs> always a bad thing to always a bad thing to do. Then running quickly through the other uh, the other questions on 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 Bosnia. Well, my idea for a while has been right. We'll get Croatia into the European Union. We'll start negotiations with Serbia, and maybe they'll wake up in Bosnia. Well, let's see. If they don't, then we'll think of something else. We won't think of the bond powers. The bond powers are dead. Uh, the bond powers functioned at the time when people in Bosnia were really afraid that there would be a return to violence. And then they were ready to accept being told what to do by Patty Ashdown. But they won't do that anymore. So we have to think of something else. Maybe it's time to... For them, we can't do it completely, but maybe it's time for them to revisit Dayton. But they have to do it. They have to do that. The, um, uh, uh, on the question, I've missed one, but on the question of limits to the European Union, that was from... From the back. Uh, yeah. from, uh, from the back. When I stand up so you can see my tie, because I always <laughs> choose my ties carefully, 
and I chose a tie with a picture of a Roman aqueduct on it. And that roughly, I think, is a good measure of where the limits of the European Union should be set. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean for Scotland? Well, I mean... Can I comment on that one? I think I'll, I think I'll leave Bosnia to others. But I mean, one interesting thing about the Roman aqueduct and the Roman amphitheatre is some of the best examples are found in North Africa. Um, so <laughs> I don't know whether... <laughs> <laughs> it, takes time. it takes time, but the Mediterranean is essentially a union. <laughs> uh, I think the nice thing about it, I'm, I'm only going to comment on that question because I think the others can talk about the others. But I think one of the nice things about Europe and indeed the European Union is there isn't an obvious geographical limit. Uh, I'm quite clear that the countries of the Eastern Partnership could all join. I believe Turkey could join as well. I I think it's not totally inconceivable, and I once wrote a fantasy piece in my publication marking the 100th anniversary of the European project when I said the big problem facing the European Union in 2057 is what to do about Russia's application to join. Um, Because I don't think that's absolutely out of the question. And And the other part of my fantasy... Um, taking advantage of the fact that Israel is a member of the Eurovision Song Contest was that I fantasized that the ultimate solution, if that's the right phrase, to the Israel-Palestine conflict was when both countries joined the European Union. Um, So I wouldn't set limits. On the the issue, I'll pass over to the other panellists in a moment, but on the issue of institutional capacity, it is, of course, worth remembering that... uh, uh, that as a historian of this process, um, there were quite serious predictions that the community could never work as it expand- if it expanded from six to nine. Mm. Uh, so we do have to remember that at every stage of the process, people have kept on saying, we're getting to the limit, we're getting to the limit, we cannot go beyond this. Now, that doesn't, of course, logically mean that they won't be right at some point, but it, uh, in a sense, the capacity to expand has been remarkable. Yeah, on, on, let me uh, jump in on North Africa. We sometimes forget that Algeria was part of the entity from 1958. Um, Rome, the Treaty of Rome comes into force to 1962 when it parted ways with France. So EU was a North African power. And it still is with Ceuta and Melilla, um, part of yes. Spain. So we are, we are already there. <laughs> We've been there. Uh, more seriously, on institutional capacity, it kind of ties in to the question about 2020 because much depends on how countries develop um, the less shiny um, side of their governance machine, which is uh, the capacity to absorb funds and to spend them and to make sure that money goes uh, to the right priorities. But I mean, one thing I can say is that right now this shows the added value of, of Europe. Uh, in a number of member states, new member states, without transfers from Brussels, uh, recession would have been uh, the state of the economy. So you have modest growth, but without uh, any structural funds cohesion funds flowing in, it would have been much, much worse. On Bosnia, I mean, it's, it's the million-dollar question, or million convertible mark question. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a ESI paper on the Sadic Finci case uh, arguing that you should actually relax its um, conditionality because this um, requirement... Uh, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm very agnostic on, on this issue, but it makes things better if you let Bosnia make the next stage. I'm not convinced that it will help. Um, but again, it's, it merits a whole new discussion and a whole new panel to discuss Bosnia's hills. Sure. 
Um, I think on the institutional or absorption capacity debate, which was absolutely the heart um, of issues when I first started working on enlargement in um, 2006, uh, which led ultimately to the renewed consensus I described in December 2006. my own view is that the crucial question is um, if there's sufficient political will among the, what, the existing EU member states to make it work, it will work. Um, and uh, it's not about uh, numbers, it's about uh, political leadership. And up to now that has been the case, although I, I do echo what Piers has said, that you know, uh, it doesn't mean that at some point it couldn't be wrong. But um, uh, up until now, the answer has always been, we want to make it work. Um, in terms of uh, Bosnia, which certainly does merit a separate discussion, uh, I think uh, a key element is uh, Bosnian public opinion. I think there is um, a desire from all uh, uh, Bosnians to see uh, a future in the European Union. Um, I think um, they have quite strongly different views of how to get there, and uh, unfortunately, there have been uh, two frequent occasions where their own internal difficulties have um, been higher on their own political agenda, not necessarily that of public opinion, but that of the political leaders, uh, and they haven't. Um, led the way forwards, but we 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 have to um, we have to keep working, and I think um, ultimately there will be uh, pressure from other aspects of Bosnian society uh, that will help us find a way forward out of this uh, impasse. Um, I, I mean, I, I won't touch the limit of EU enlargement because as a good bureaucrat, all I can say is read Article 49. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, and then uh, on Europe 2020, uh, I would simply say uh, that one of the very important elements in public opinion, because from my opening remarks, I think one of the biggest deficits is on communication. Um, uh, so we need to address that. Um, I think economy is at the heart of that debate um, for two reasons. One, as long as we're in a a crisis or a recession or uh, stagnation, uh, of course the climate is not favourable within the existing EU. Uh, And two, as long as the applicant countries fail to advance sufficiently, um, these concerns about uh, migration, about lost jobs... Uh, are all the more acute. So it's important to work on the convergence, um, um, but it's a long and slow process. Um, But for that reason, at the Europe 2020, we have put in this year's enlargement strategy paper economic governance and competitiveness uh, as the absolute priority that we want uh, these countries to uh, focus on. Okay, thank you. Um, I think we've got around time for one final round of questions. There'll probably be, I won't be able to fit everybody in, but if you're particularly eager to ask a question, do put your hand up now. Okay, uh, yes, at the back to the there. I can see the hand. Yes, that's right, a lady on the edge. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. Um, I'm one of the Bulgarians who have been protesting here against the current government in Bulgaria, and as you know, thousands of people have been protesting for five months in Bulgaria now every day, including the students. 
Um, and five years after Bulgaria became a member of the European Union, still Bulgarians are you know, calling for respect of European values, greater democracy and respect of human rights. 24 years after the communism collapse, we're still calling for decommunization of the Bulgarian government. But unfortunately, we have a government now which have brought people, um, you know, with questionable past, people who are linked to the communist past, um, and we're very concerned about this. So do you think that there, that European Union has failed to bring democracy in Bulgaria and to reform Bulgarian uh, you know, Bulgarian communist system, and do you think that what are the lessons to be learned for other countries, uh, post-communist countries that are joining European Union? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, here, here at the front. Well, what, can you wait for the microphone? Thank you. I have a concern about the tenor of the debate. I think certain things. I, think I not certain worth hold it closer, perhaps. I think certain features of the debate are actually being missed. The origins of the uh, European Union are in the conflict between France and Germany and paralleling that in economic expansion. I think something fundamentally changed in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union disappeared and we saw an element of real pride and triumphalism creeping into the European Union. And the case in point, which I have most in, in mind when I discuss this, is the uh, Ukraine. I spent at least eight visits to Ukraine doing work there. And the political system was developed directly out of the Soviet model, but without the Communist Party as a counterpart to the government system. The government system in Ukraine is rotten. I was in uh, Ukraine recently for the parliamentary election. On the surface, the procedures used in the parliamentary election in Ukraine were brilliant. They had video cameras in all of the polling stations. They had procedures in place which were going to say no no corruption. The society is rotten with corruption. It is politically rotten. It is economically rotten. At the same time, we have ethnic and political divisions between East and West in the country. When I hear people saying the Ukrainian people want the European Union, my own experience is that is so wrong, it doesn't begin to understand what is going on in the country. The history is wrong, the development of the European Union, its bureaucratic tendencies to tick boxes and say, yes, everything's okay. Greece proves that is not the case. Cyprus proves that is not the case. Once you're in, you can't get anybody out. There is a real pride, a real triumphalism being injected into this debate, and I think it's faulty, and I would welcome responses to that. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, there's a lady at the back there, or midway th- and There's another one at the back. Sorry. There's another keen one. Hello, uh, another Bulgarian that is supporting the anti-government protests. Oh, and I have to say that I'm really relieved that actually we have the alternative panel rather than the initially announced speaker. <laughs> uh, we can provide a lot of information why this is the case. Um, on the topic, my question is, uh, I guess it's taking on what the gentleman already said. How exactly 
uh, all the mechanisms that are in place in terms of conditionality and in terms of the enlargement toolbox can provide and ensure that the countries that are on the verge of joining or willing to join or have already joined can keep up the pace and can actually get out of the circle, let's say, in the case of Bulgaria, of this um, democratic consolidation, struggling with uh, trying to ensure institutional stability, democracy, or the rule of law. Um, we've been experiencing and seeing that, for example, the cooperation and verification mechanism that has been in place since 2007, for the most part, has proven toothless. So what exactly can we do on this? And how can we reconcile, let's say, uh, the euro crisis and the crisis that is experiencing each and every of the country that is a member of the European Union? Okay, thank you. And one final question, yes, in the back there. I'm hoping it's another one. Thank you. I was just, it's more like a comment, I think, rather than a question, but there is a huge, you've already discussed it, but I would just like to kind of summarize it. There is a huge disparity between uh, expectations from access countries, and then uh, that the EU is something like a developmental agency, which clearly it's not, but this is how it's sold to us. I come from Bulgaria, so no surprise, as I can imagine. Uh, and, the, and the fact the reality of high-level political games and calculations. However, when we have the, the uh, situation of Vivian Redding, who's a commissioner, saying very openly, not just her, that our accession was a political compromise, then why not now do you take responsibility about this, that it was clearly a political compromise? Why do the people who are actually waiting for some kind of accountability are not really given any kind of a response to this? We do understand that the EU is not a developmental agency. We do understand that. However, we were, we were sold this idea. We did what we could. And right now we are experiencing a lot, of, a lot of political populism from different countries on our backs, which is clearly not that fair in the, the spirit of European values. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay. So, who, well, who wants to... Well, we've got... We've got at least four Bulgarians in this room uh, who, who want to change things. This seems to me to form the basis for a new political party. <laughs> and, uh, but somewhere or other, that's actually that's what's required. Uh, and that there needs to be a change in politics. Unfortunately, this is really hard work and it requires a lot of energy. But that's it. It's garbage in, garbage out. If you really want to change things, then some of you have to do something. I bet there are lots of people who would be very happy to help. And there are a lot of them on the streets in Bulgaria at the moment. It just needs them to be organized. There are a lot of good people who would like to get rid of all of this nonsense. Someone needs to mobilize them. Okay. We volunteered once more. Uh, I think there is a fundamental misconception when we talk about the EU exporting democracy. It, it is not the case. It's never been the case. What the EU does is uh, lock in certain dynamics that are already in place. Um, in other words, it facilitates democracy. It might help you consolidate democracy, but it's not um, the primary mover and shaker in any democratic development. And I think what happens in Bulgaria is very encouraging in a way. Uh, I mean, it's not for the EU to make sure we have a democratic system. EU is a partner, not a substitute. Uh, since 2007, we lived, and even before, we lived in a world when citizens expected the EU to do the difficult um, 
the, the heavy lifting, the, the difficult job. Now, I think civil society or parts of civil society are waking up to the fact that they have to partner with the EU, and, and, but not wait for the EU to give them direction. And I, I think that, that's positive. Um, because the consolidation of democracy, which looks good on paper, procedurally works fine, but when you look at, scratch the surface and look behind the facade, you see all the deficits. Um, it's, it's a formidable task, and uh, Robert has a point there. Um, so that's, that's my answer. I mean, we shouldn't be saying you come to our rescue. We should be saying something like, uh, we're here, we're willing to do something, and the EU is, is there to, to help because it's also a matter of democratic legitimacy. You know, those institutions uh, go back to uh, citizens, even in peripheral and, and poor countries, right? Now, the question about Ukraine, um, Ukrainian society being rotten, that that's, might, might be the case. But what, what is interesting about enlargement is that you have various interests pushing in that direction. Um, of course, many Ukrainian citizens might be idealistic. Others might have some instrumental reasons. That includes the oligarchs. And, and that might include even the regime. Um, Yanukovych looking at uh, Brussels as a way to obtain cover against Moscow. Uh, for me, the interesting question is, okay, I mean, this constellation of interests might put a country in, in the EU for all kinds of reasons, but what is the long-term effect of being in this context, going back to what Robert said? Is there a transformative effect, even if the initial impulse might be less than noble? Um, and we are yet to discover the answer, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I just let me make a comment or two on Ukraine, which I'm sure I don't know anything like as well as the, the questioner does. Um, but I was there during the um, uh, Orange Revolution, um, and I've been there, I think, four times since then. Um, of course, we know that Ukraine, it's only existed in, in its current form since 1991. If you ask Putin, um, uh, which uh, a colleague of mine did in Moscow, is Ukraine a sovereign country? He sort of says, well, of course, it's a sovereign country, but you can tell he doesn't really believe it. Um, uh, and I think Russia's behavior this year um, has actually turned more Ukrainians, and I do use the word Ukrainians because I recognize it as a country despite the difference between Donetsk and, and Lviv. Um, it's turned many more Ukrainians towards the European Union. I agree with you that Ukraine has many, many defects. Um, I think not quite as many as Belarus, but it does have a lot. But we're not talking about, nobody would talk about membership for Ukraine for at least 30 years. Um, but I think that it is a country, and I think that actually, if you talk uh, to some of the people who represent the, who come from the east of Ukraine, they don't really want to go back to being run by the Kremlin, uh, even though they come from the Russian-speaking half of the country. Uh, even in the Crimea, people don't seem to want to go back to being run by the Kremlin. So I think that we ought to allow for the possibility that Ukraine can reform one day into, into a country that could conceivably be eligible for the European Union. But there are a lot of ifs in that. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I'll pick up also on, on, on the Ukraine question. Uh, and in particular, uh, there's two sides to it. One was the Ukraine aspect and the other was the triumphalism uh, mm. aspect. Um, I think that um, I was actually working, uh, as it happens, for five years on Ukraine right up to the day of the Orange Revolution. Um, I think the first point I would make about Ukraine uh, is that it definitely wasn't a lack of political will from the Ukrainians at that point. Um, it was uh, um, the mood in the European Union uh, because 
they were absolutely keen to obtain um, uh, a European membership perspective, um, uh, but that was, perspective was not uh, on the table. Uh, I'm, uh, it, I think we also have to remember the, the, the time period, and the time period was as the Big Bang enlargement was reaching its critical moment. And um, we discussed uh, at length today uh, the issues uh, about <coughs> political leadership, whereas uh, nobody seriously questioned uh, at the time uh, that we should complete that enlargement. There was certainly nobody uh, uh, in the leadership about to say it's been such a roaring success that we should do an awful lot more of it immediately. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's what happened. Um, and then events have gone on a considerable uh, amount over the past nine years. Um, it's for students in this audience to analyze whether had such a perspective been offered, um, the situation might have been different, and if so, in what way. Um, but uh, that is um, what I would say on the Ukraine side. Um, <coughs> certainly don't, you know, uh, triumphalism... Um, is not appropriate. Um, that said, um, nor should one be unnecessarily modest. I think that there are aspects uh, that have been extremely important uh, in the enlargement process, and I think we should recognize where that succeeded. We should also recognize uh, where things have failed um, uh, or where they could have been done better. Uh, and I think uh, what I tried to say in my opening remarks is that enlargement uh, is very much an evolving process and has got ever more rigorous, and it's also taken an awful lot longer. Um, uh, I won't go into the specificities um, uh, uh, of Greece, but I would say, uh, other than to say that uh, at the time the decision was surely motivated more by uh, uh, democratic values than economic convergence. And uh, if we're talking about uh, failures, I think the issues are more on the economic side rather than on the democratic side. Um, and uh, when, you, uh, when you talk about uh, Cyprus, I think um, one of the lasting regrets, not least of the Cypriots themselves, uh, is that uh, there is currently no solution to that issue, but I think that is absolutely key going forward. But there's definitely no cause for triumphalism, uh, and we, we constantly seek to um, make the process uh, uh, more robust. Can I add just yes. one word? I, it's coming, coming a little bit back to the earlier question about, about Bulgaria, what the European Union exports, and here the question in the front row is right, one ought to be cautious about hubris. The European Union doesn't export democracy, it exports bureaucracy. Mm. I'm tempted to say it exports bureaucracy moderate durch Schlamperei, to, um, uh, to cite the Habsburg Empire, which was described as dictatorship um, uh, softened by slovenliness. Um, uh, the, um, uh, but um, and bureaucracy is an important part of modern government um, but it's incomplete without democracy and fortunately that's something which cannot be exported and that must be indigenous uh, and somewhere in our thinking about enlargement we ought to take more account of that which in a way is what the gentleman on Ukraine was saying as well 
Okay, well, I know from the number of people who put their hand up and who I wasn't able to pick that there were plenty more questions, but we have reached 8 o'clock, so I think it's time uh, to wrap things up. Uh, but I think it's having given us such excellent service, the speakers all deserve a round of applause.